0: Good morning. I had a question, good question this morning. Was I saying that micrographic surgery is the best choice for DFSP? Yeah, that, that is what we were saying. Um, at, at the institutions I've been a part of, Mayo Clinic, uh, University of Texas, Colorado University of Colorado, uh, that, that's the best choice. And uh, there, there's a 2011 paper uh, saying that it was the first-line therapy, and there's a 2012 paper saying there's, that it's a first-line therapy. Um, I, I didn't find any th- papers that said that it, it, it wasn't a good choice. Somebody asked me, they said, oh, the micrographic surgeon in my area doesn't like to do DFSPs. I think that's probably a good observation, but it's probably based more on what, what that guy likes to do. It's kind of a hard procedure on the micrographic surgeon because the DFSP doesn't look all that much different than SCAR. So it, it's a very taxing thing. I think my wife said you know, when she gets one, she plans on it being like a seven-stage procedure most of the day. And there are probably some people, particularly in private practice, who aren't willing to, to, to you know, make their whole day one single procedure. So that that probably has more to do with it than anything else. If you do a general surgery, you just have to take wider margins. Uh, it, it just takes longer or, or wider margins to, to make sure that you're out of the tumor. So So that's our opinion on DFSP. Maybe it's not everybody's opinion, but I think it's a pretty pretty good pretty good opinion on the subject. So today we're going to talk about medical legal things. I, I have a law degree. I went to law school. I don't practice law. I don't really want to practice law, at least not yet, maybe when I retire or something like that. But uh, I do participate in a lot of, of, of medical legal consultation and medical legal matters. I publish a whole bunch of bu- bu- uh, articles on, on medical legal things. In fact, recently I published a whole – I was the editor on a whole – guest compilation of a bunch of different articles on on medical legal matters so uh, it's something i'm interested in uh, but i I don't practice law and i'm certainly not offering you legal advice this is kind of what clinic feels uh, like sometimes to me i'm kind of laboring under this huge burden of malpractice and and my setup isn't always great to protect me uh from the danger so what i'm thinking is that if we talk about it a little bit we can all find better ways uh, to practice more safely There's a very famous study, and just to be a well-rounded person, you should know about it. So it's called the Harvard Medical Practice Study of 1990. And what they did, they looked at 31,000 medical records in Boston, and they found that using doctors and a panel uh, where negligence had to be agreed upon by the entirety of the panel, about 1 in 25 people were harmed by a medical error. So that was kind of surprising people didn't realize that that there were that many errors in medicine but it does kind of make sense because we're all human beings and we're all inter, interdependent upon so many different professionals and things in our field but of those one in 25 people that were harmed by a medical error only one in 25 of those people so one in 625 went on to to actually fire uh, file a, a medical legal claim so so it, it's it's not very common really uh, to have litigation arise, even though errors are more common. So people did uh, looked at that study, and it was a very famous study. Everybody should know about it. And then they re-examined the, the same series of data in May 2006. So 16 years later, they looked at the same data. And specifically, they looked at the 1,400 claims that arose from the 31,000 cases. A- and they found that about 90% of those claims had some kind of legitimate medical injury and about 60% of the time it was due to a doctor's error. So so 40% of the time it was due to, to a nursing error or a hospital error or something like that, but 60% of the time it was due to a to a physician error. And, and when there was no error, there was uh, there was uh, there was a compensation in maybe 72% of cases, but when there was an error, there was compensation in 73% of cases. The bad part is it took about $50,000 in litigation and about five years for the doctors to resolve these matters. So there's two kind of ways of looking at that data. You can say, oh, well, you know, usually when nobody was actually erred, there was really no compensation, so that's good. The courts got the right answer about 75% of the time. Uh, uh, Claims were pretty low for completely frivolous, completely made-up cases, so that seems pretty careful and deliberate. But really, the other flip of the coin is, well, 10% of people were paid where they didn't have any injury at all. 75% is a C. Most of the people in this room have probably never gotten a C in their entire life and would be pretty high-strung if they did. I'd be suicidal if I got a C, I think, in something. And, uh, uh, you know, that it did cost about $50,000 in five years to adjudicate these matters. And so that's five years that the medical professional is really, really stressed out about depositions and what's going to happen to their practice and all those kinds of things. So you can also look at it as wasteful and fickle. So it looks great from one angle, and it looks really lousy uh, from the other angle. And so people kind of argue about do we have the best system? Are there ways we could tweak this with, with a tort reform and things like that make a better system. Um, But the good news is that actually you guys all practice in a very uh, stress-free environment relative to some other medical specialties. There are some people, like it's estimated that about half of all neurosurgeons get sued every single year. So 50%, it's actually like in the 40s, but 40% of people uh, in neurosurgery get sued every single year. So, So that's a very, very high stress occupation. Whereas down here in dermatology, uh, you're, you're pretty, uh, lawsuits are pretty rare. They still happen, but they're much, much more rare. Uh, so so that, that's kind of a good thing overall. Uh, the, 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 the only bad thing is that actually, when things go wrong in dermatology, the awards are actually much higher. So here's the national average uh, award at lawsuit for a skin cancer is half a million dollars, whereas the overall national award is only, let's say, $100,000. So even though dermatologists don't, and, and dermatology professionals don't get sued as often, when there is a lawsuit, it seems like it's a, it's a lawsuit that's worth more money, probably because of melanoma, to be honest, because melanoma is very, very deadly. So if you look at all the reasons that somebody, I, I pulled all the lawsuits in Colorado several years ago, and you find that you know laser accidents are kinda common, Accutane compl- complications kinda common, but missed melanoma is the, is the big cause of litigation in Colorado among dermatologists, other things just kind of happen infrequently, but melanoma is is the queen with regard to to the potential for lawsuits, and that's kind of borne out nationally as well. Uh, it's certainly known that that you know nationally about 15 percent of all lawsuits against dermatologists and dermatopathologists involve skin cancer, and particularly involve. Mist melanoma. So that's, that's an important thing to, to keep in mind is that pigmented lesions are the thing that you're doing during the day that's really, really the riskiest. But lawsuits are infrequent. You know, we, we already mentioned that one in 25 people were hurt, but only one in 25 of the one in 25 actually went on to take any action. But every year, about 200 wildebeests and zebras, or 200 million, Wildebeest and zebras cross the Serengeti. So, 200 million animals moving uh, across the Serengeti, and only a few will be attacked uh, by animals, but by lions, alligators, things like that. But it doesn't make it any less traumatizing to the zebra or the wildebeest that gets cut out from the herd. It's just as traumatizing to them uh, and just as real to them. So, so what you really want to do is you want to try to find some way to adapt and become better at avoiding those lawsuits, because it doesn't provide you any solace when you're in the middle of a lawsuit to say, oh, well, most of my brethren aren't getting sued today. It actually, you're mostly worried about yourself and what it's doing to your life. So so unique concerns for physicians is, uh, extenders is this respondent superior. That means let the master answer. That's what it literally translates in Latin. To let the master answer. So really, anytime you're likely to get sued, unless your state is very, very unusual, your, your, your supervising physician is going to get sued also. And, and, and that's because in most states, he is actually or she is actually responsible for everything that you do to some degree. That may be a little bit different if you're a nurse practitioner than a physician assistant, but I know that the majority of people in here are, are physician assistants. But it, it's let the master answer. And it's just that he has the power to hire and fire, or she has the power to hire and fire, to set guidelines for your office, things of that nature. And so he's the person that's actually responsible in the end if an error transpires. So lawsuits against physician extenders are rare, and against, against physician extenders alone are extremely rare. You usually have to do something that's really, really massively in contradiction with the office policy on the matter or something like that, to be the sole person that, that's involved in litigation. Usually settlements uh, uh, that don't involve uh, the, the supervising docs pertain to something that you've done that's completely beyond what he or she would have wished for you to do, and especially if it's a published policy the office, and then you violate that, then maybe you could be in trouble all by yourself. But generally, Uh, Even plaintiffs' attorneys are going to lump in the doctor because that means more pay for them usually. Then they're going to be able to sue two people instead of one person, and they may be twice as lucky with regard to the award. So the average settlements for physician extender cases is actually higher than the national physician average, probably for that reason, because they get to sue kind of two people instead of just one person. So that's kind of unique. The most... Lawsuits against physician extenders usually involve an inadequate or abbreviated examination, inadequate supervision, meaning that your doctor didn't actually uh, come and assist you with a more complicated case, delayed referral to a consultant, or failure to diagnose. Those are the four big categories, overall categories, of lawsuits against PAs and nurse practitioners. So let's look at some interesting quotes and try to decide how that impacts how we're going to practice, things like that. A poorly documented medical record can turn good medicine into an indefensible case." So what they mean is that you could do the greatest, you could be actually performing the greatest medicine you've ever performed, but you didn't document any of it, and hence when the, when the thing comes to trial, they can't really prove any of it. It goes to the old matter of if you didn't document it, it didn't happen, basically. And and so that's really, really important because now there's all these time constraints on on us and we try to be more and more brief all the time in in our medical records. But if we're not documenting our really good medical decisions, then there's no way to prove what really happened. And and that gets to the second quote. It's not about what you know, it's what you can prove in court. That's a uh, famous quote from a movie, but it's actually really, really true. And it gets the matter of of medical legal matters. If you can't really prove that it happened, then it doesn't really matter if it did or didn't. And that's kind of a depressing thing about our law system, but it's actually really true. It doesn't really so much matter what actually happened. It's what you can prove in a court of law that, that really is important. So let's talk about just kind of the basics of malpractice a little bit so that everybody's on the same page. Because one thing I find when I talk to physicians that haven't been to law school like me is they really don't know what they're talking about at all. They say things that don't make any sense. They say, oh, the judge said this, the jury said that. And they don't even really make any sense. So you know that they're kind of things that they've heard through the grapevine. They're really not accurate. So malpractice is, is, is civil law. It's, it's called tort law and it seeks to take money and compensate someone for an injury. So it can only compensate somebody to the degree that money can make up for something. Uh, money can make up for a lost limb, money can make up for, for pain and suffering, maybe, maybe money can make up for a life. But it's all money that we're talking about. There's never any, uh, uh, there's never any jail time or anything like that in, in malpractice law. It's all, it's all based on money. And then it's based on the preponderance of the evidence. So what you have to be really aware of is that means more likely than not. And in fact, if any of you have been deposed or will be deposed, they'll ask you over and over again, was it more likely than not? And so what they mean is that 50.0000001% likely, then it's more likely than not. So it's a lot different from uh, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, which is all what we like to, to watch on our, our crime shows and everything like that. But beyond a Reasonable Doubt is the, is the standard for, for criminal law, but it's not the standard for civil law. For civil law, it's just more likely than not. So 50.00001% will suffice, whereas if we had to put a number on Beyond a Reasonable Doubt, what, it's, what is it, like 90 sure 98% sure they don't assign a number in, in criminal law but beyond a reasonable doubt means you have to be really 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 sure more likely than not just means you have to be more likely than not so you have to be really really careful about using words like likely or probably in your medical notes because if you're saying things like likely or probably you probably mean greater than 50% which is more likely than not and so just keep in mind uh, that that's the standard in civil law. More likely than not, not beyond a reasonable doubt. So, what element of a prima facie malpractice case must be satisfied in order for the case to proceed against a provider? Do they have to have a duty? Do they have to breach a duty? Do they have to be the cause of the accident? Do they have to have? Does the patient have to have actual damages, or do all of the above have to be satisfied for a case to proceed? Okay. That's entirely correct. The majority wins. So all of them have to be satisfied. So let's talk about a prima facie case. This is an interesting case. It was filed by a person pro se, meaning that they're representing themselves. And so they filed this in the Court of Colorado. I pulled it because I can. And it says the court has requested to seek the death penalty against Dr. X for murdering the patient in cold blood when he was warned when she was uh, resisting, blah, 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 blah. So do we really wanna get rid of all the lawyers because this person is representing themselves and they've just asked for the death penalty uh, against a provider? Probably not because this is preposterous. Uh, the court would immediately throw this out because we already talked about being civil law and, and money is the only penalty you're ever gonna get. You're never gonna get the death penalty against a doctor or, or anything like that for a medical malpractice matter. But there are these things called the elements of a prima facie case, and they have to be satisfied, all of them. If you don't satisfy all of them, then there is no prima facie case, and the court won't allow the lawsuit to proceed. It doesn't mean that you can't argue about whether one is present, but the plaintiff has to have a theory about how that element is satisfied. You guys may both argue if there's a breach of duty, but at least they have to have some type of argument as to how there was a breach of duty. It can be an, uh, a conflict from your theory on the matter, but it has to be present. So every single time you have to have a duty to the patient. This is, a ma- this is an arguable thing if it's a, uh, a curbside consultation. Say one of you guys grabs me in the elevator and you start telling me this really, really sad tale about this 63-year-old woman and she will blah, 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 and you go on and on and on, and I say, I would have done X, Y, Z, and then I get off the elevator. I don't really have a duty to your patient. I didn't actually see them. I don't actually even know if you're telling the truth. You might be making the whole thing up. Uh, the, the circumstances might actually be different, et cetera, et cetera. So in that case, I don't have any duty. So if anybody contacts me two years later in Colorado, I say, I don't even know what you're talking about. Never practice medicine in the state of Indiana. Have a good day. So that's duty. So you have to actually have a duty to the patient. And usually, usually one of the pieces of evidence is did you bill the patient or not? That's usually one of the pieces of evidence as to whether you have a duty. Then there has to be a standard of care, and the standard of care has to be established every single time. There's no book on the judge's desk or anything like that where he says, oh, DFSP, let me look that up real quick. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's CD34, and it's Mohs surgery yep that's the standard of care it's established every single time as if the court has never ever heard such a case ever before and it's established with experts so they actually fly experts in professors from universities usually like myself and that expert says well this is what I do for DFSP and that becomes the standard of care and then they have to have a theory as to how you breached the standard of care did you do or did you not do something that you should have done or, not should, or should not have done. And then you have to have two different kinds of cause. You have to cause in fact, which, which is also, also called but for causation. But for you doing or not doing this, the whole incident wouldn't have happened. That's cause in fact. And so some people liken this to rolling a videotape backwards. And if they can actually see you, aha, that's where everything went wrong. Then, then but for causation is satisfied. But that's only one element of causation. The other element of causation is proximate cause. And that is it reasonable for you to be held accountable for that error. And, and, and the best way to think of this is like, let's pretend that you had uh, uh, you had a, a, a report come to you that said, you know, John Smith has melanoma 9.4 millimeters uh, satellite intrans and metastases are present at the edge of the sampling. There's lymphatic invasion. There's 100,000 mitoses per millimeter squared. And you think, oh my God, this is a horrible, horrible melanoma. And you call John Smith and you say, John, John you have a horrible melanoma. Can you come in later in the day because this is just, it's just I'm not saying you'd actually do this over the phone, but uh, you say, gosh, it's horrible. It's, you know, you're probably going to die any second. And, and John freaks out and John, uh, instead of coming to see you that afternoon, he travels to Thailand, and he, he goes to a brothel, and he acquires HIV, and he spends all his money in Thailand on drugs and sex and everything else conceivable. And then he comes home two or three weeks later, and there's a message saying, Oh, my God, John, it wasn't your results. It was actually Jim's results. Can, uh, Jim Smith, can you, can you go ahead and give me a call back? That would be unreasonable, to hold you for all those things that John did that were probably illegal on top of that, it was unreasonable to foresee that result. So that would fail proximate cause. Even though you were actually the cause in fact, it was unreasonable to anticipate that any normal person would have done all those crazy things. But let's say instead of freaking out and going to Thailand and doing all those things, he just drives across town to a different hospital and spends $20,000 on a PET scan, and and then he drives to a Chinese herb market and he spends $10,000 on shark cartilage, and he does all these things that somewhere someone could have construed as reasonable for a diagnosis of cancer. You would be on the hook for all those things. That would be reasonable to expect that somebody with a diagnosis of, of melanoma would go on to pursue medical care, maybe even questionable medical care that would be reasonable, but it would be unreasonable to expect him to go to Thailand. So that's proximate cause. And then most importantly, you have to have damages. So usually when I see a, a, pay, a person uh, professionally or I get a phone call from somebody about a legal case, usually the, the one thing that fails uh, for me is damages. So, so imagine that you saw a patient last week and you told them that something was a seborrheic keratosis. And even right now at this very moment, they're seeing someone else because they didn't believe you and didn't think you knew what you were talking about, and that person diagnoses a melanoma. Only two weeks have gone by. What, is the per- what are the person's damages? There really aren't any. I mean, he might say, oh, I had to take time off work. Uh, you know, I was kind of stressed out things like that. But that's not really going to interest a lawyer who has to pay the electricity bill and pay his paralegals and everything else. He wants to see major damages. So always keep in mind that sometimes, even though there's been a medical error and all these things are are satisfied, there's really no tangible damages. And in fact, with the residents every year in July 1st, when we have new residents come in to my clinic, they always want to see people PRN. And I don't like to see people PRN because that allows damages to accumulate, to accumulate, to accumulate. So, so we'll see somebody, and we'll use our MoleMax machine to, to, um, to map their mole, and then they'll say, follow up PRN. And I'll say, whoa, no, 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 we just took a picture of, of a lesion that's going to be blown up four feet by four feet at the trial, and, and you want to see them back PRN. I'm uncomfortable with that. So uh, what you should do is kind of do an experiment with yourself sometime and say, I missed a melanoma today. I know I did, and you know, theoretically, this is a theoretical experiment. You missed a melanoma today, when does it actually start to matter? Two weeks from now? Nah. Two months from now? Probably really not. I mean, maybe if it's some kind of weird nodular melanoma or something like that, but if it was that difficult to call, severely atypical nevus versus melanoma or something like that, probably doesn't really matter. Three months probably doesn't matter. Four months probably doesn't matter. Six months starting to matter. Nine months starting to matter. Twelve months, that sounds really bad because the guy can go to the jury and be like, for an entire year this man had a melanoma growing on his skin. That's really too long. So you can do that kind of experiment with yourself and kind of decide when do you start to get uncomfortable. And when you start to get uncomfortable, that's actually when you need to kind of start seething the patient back in your clinic because you're mitigating damages is what you're doing. So that's really all the things that are, are also diagrammed in this uh, pyramid, pyramid fashion where you say you have a duty, you have negligent action, and you have to have damages. That's just a simplified version of thinking about the things we already talked about. So you have this standard of care that's established by experts every single time. And one important thing that I say, you don't always have to be right. You can be flat out wrong as long as what you did was reasonable. If most people placed in your situation that reasonably and, and prudently practice medicine would have made the same choice as you, then there's no, there's no breach in the standard of care. You just have to be a reasonable and prudent provider. And that's why it's really, really important sometimes to document what you're thinking and what you're doing. Because lawsuits cost money, and that money is fronted by the attorney. So the attorney does what's called a contingency. He says, I'll pay for all your experts, I'll pay for all your, your, the costs associated with the trial, and if we win, then I get 30% of the earnings, or a third, usually it's 33 to 40%. So that's called a contingency. So the attorney is fronting all the, ex, the expenses for the plaintiff. And, and if he wins, then he gets to keep a third of the winnings. So if he wins $3 million, he gets to keep a million dollars, let's say. But that's called a contingency. So all that money is what the what the uh, what the person has, what the attorney has in jeopardy. So it usually costs between $125 and $250,000 to put on a medical lawsuit. So that means that person has that law firm has $125 to $250,000 sitting in jeopardy. So that's why they're not interested in your sad story about how you missed work and had to drive across town for a second appointment and how you were really stressed out for an entire week before you got this diagnosis of melanoma because that's never ever going to make up for the cost that they have invested in the case they need huge huge injuries to make this worthwhile for them so attorneys aren't really interested in close calls They're not really interested in some kind of weird spitz tumor versus melanoma that was seen at five different institutions and nobody could agree on what it was because that's not going to play well to the jury. What they'd really like is they'd like a very obvious melanoma that was called an intradermal nevus. That would be fantastic. They'd like you to operate on the wrong site. They'd like you to give a patient that was horribly allergic to penicillin, anaphylaxis allergic to penicillin. Uh, penicillin. That's what they'd like to see. They'd like to see really, really cut-and-dry, easy cases that are winnable because they know that they have that money in jeopardy every single time. And plaintiffs uh, plaintiffs lose four out of five cases. So doctors or professionals win four out of five cases. So they're they, they're looking for a certain fact pattern. In fact, it's said that of... And I actually did a panel with attorneys last week in, in Denver, and the attorney said, I take 100 phone calls for every single one case that I accept my practice. So he listens to 99 sad tales, and he's only going to take one extra case that actually sounds appealing to him. So only one out of every 100 phone calls from injured patients is he actually interested in. So if you're ever named in a suit... What you can do uh, to defend yourself is you can attack any of those required elements. You can say, I didn't have a duty, I didn't breach the standard of care, I, I, there weren't any damages. Taking down any one of those required elements invalidates the case. But you can also assert an affirmative defense. An affirmative defense is something that, that it's like an aha thing. You say, everything you say is true, aha but it happened too long ago in time. That's usually the the case. So let's look at statute of limitations because that's the most common affirmative defense. So a statute of limitations varies from state to state to state. I have zero idea what the statute of limitations is here in Indiana, I don't have any idea. But the statute of limitations in Colorado is two years. So you have two years to file your lawsuit. If you wait, 2 years and 1 day then your lawsuit is disallowed it's not you can't proceed and the reason is because people's memories fade records become unavailable you know uh, nurses that were, you once worked for you have moved on so you're never going to be able to file a lawsuit 30 years ago because you've retired all your staff has retired the records have been destroyed everything else so that's the idea behind statute of limitations but it may vary from situation to situation, or from state to state. So here's a very famous case against a very famous dermatologist who I anonymized here, but you could actually look this up. This is very findable. Against an anonymous uh, anonymous patient, again, it's an anonymous dermatologist. But this is actually, this person was a president of the academy at one time. Everybody makes mistakes. So so, uh, this is a real situation. The plaintiff sought care from the dermatologist, and the Dermatologist biopsied and interpreted the slide himself as a benign nevus. Two years later, exactly two years later, the, the woman sought care from a plastic surgeon who called for the records. And before the dermatologist sent the records to the surgeon, he went ahead and looked at the slide a second time. A lot of people do when they when you get a call for records. And he decided, you know what, I was wrong. This is actually a melanoma. And so he amended the report, which he should have done. He changed the report and said, actually, I was wrong. It's a melanoma. And it so happens that in Virginia, there's a two-year statute of limitations. And so the question became, was the lawsuit timely? It's been two years since the date of service, but uh, now he's amending the record to say, aha, you know, I was actually mistaken. It was a melanoma and so this case went all the way to the Virginia Supreme Court not the United States Supreme Court but it went all the way to the Virginia Supreme Court and the Virginia Supreme Court decided that the statute of limitations does not begin at the date of service and that's a common misperception so it doesn't begin at that little date on your visit or that little date on the sticker from the date of service or the date on the path form it began two years from when the melanoma moved from the epidermis into the dermis. Well, when the heck was that? that was, that's an example of lawyers making a bad medical decision. But the important point was that the court said that definitely happened sometime after the date of service. And so the lawsuit was timely, and this doctor ended up having to, to settle the case. So this is the rule in most states. The statute of limitations begins when an injured party should have been reasonably aware that an injury had transpired. So it's not the date of service. It's nothing you can look at on your form and find. In almost all 50 states except New York, the statute of limitations begins when an injured party should have been reasonably aware. So that's why we tell you that when you have some kind of problem with a patient's results or problem with a patient's diagnosis, you need to tell them and change your record right away because it could be argued that that's the moment at which the patient is reasonably aware. So if I, let's say I, I made a mistake last week. I go home, and I find it when I get back from this conference, and then I call the patient. I tell you, you know, last week I was in a hurry. I was trying to leave for Indiana, and I made a really simple error. I'm sorry. It won't hurt you, but I just wanted to let you know that you did have a basal cell, and you need to come in and get it taken care of. The the 2 years would begin from the moment I had the phone call with that patient, not 2 years from the office visit. Does that begin does that make sense to everybody? So it's from when you were reasonably aware. So the sooner you tell the patient there's been a mistake and I wanted to make you aware of it, that's the day you start arguing that the patient became reasonably aware of the error on that date and if they don't choose to do anything in the next couple years, then yeah, they're they're out of luck. They can't have a change of heart three years down the road in Colorado because they only had two years to to, to take action. So then there's always got to be damages. There's there's special damages, which are things you can present a receipt for, like medical bills, wheelchairs, nursing care, things like that. And then there's general damages, pain and suffering, loss of enjoyment, loss of consortium, all those things are, are, are general damages. There are things that for which you could not present any receipt. There are also punitive damages, but punitive damages are almost never sought in medical malpractice. Does anybody know why? It's because they're specifically outlawed by your policy. Uh, Most insurance policies say we will not pay punitive damages. And so since the medical legal apparatus is sort of a business out into itself, lawyers don't ask for it because they know they're not going to get it. So then there's these things called damage caps. Here's the damage cap in Colorado $150,000. It was actually adjusted this year to $350,000. But until July 1st of this year, it was $150,000. So this was a huge disincentive to ever sue a University of Colorado employee because all you would ever get under any circumstances, if I lopped your head off, all you would get was $150,000. And what did we say it costs to put on a lawsuit minimum? about $125,000, so you'd be risking $125,000 for a 20% shot at $150,000. So until this recent change, the University of Colorado was almost never sued. If we were sued, it was for something really, really obvious like a wrong site surgery or something like that. But on close calls, we were almost never sued because it wasn't financially sound for for the lawyer to do it. Oregon used to have a damage cap of $200,000. They used to have a $200,000 damage cap, a lot like our Colorado $150,000 damage cap. And then in the last few years, they had a case of a a baby born uh, with an anoxic injury, and they ended up with about $12 million in damages. This was at the state hospital in Oregon. And, and so the, the family sued the doctors and the nurses involved. And, and they proved that they had $12 million in lifetime care for this, for this child, uh, that they would have about $12 million in lifetime care. And then the Oregon, state, uh, the Oregon court said, well, that's great. You know, I'm really, really glad to hear about that $12 million. Here's your $200,000 damage cap. Have a good day. And so they sued that that was unconstitutional that it was, it was unconstitutional for the state to deny them the $12 million which they won from the jury and substitute it with $200,000. And the Oregon Supreme Court decided that they were right. And so they threw out the damage cap. So Oregon no longer has a damage cap at all. The cap is the sky's the limit. As much as you can prove is, is as much as they'll pay. So this was a huge, huge blow for Oregon Uh, state health care for the state health care system in Oregon was a huge huge thing and Texas actually recently imposed damage caps so until recently until 2009 Texas had no damage cap and now it put in place a damage cap so all 50 states are a little bit different and people can argue about whether they work or whether they don't work whether they control costs or don't control costs but the important thing is that in some states they're legal and in other states, like Oregon, they're illegal. And the only thing that can ever happen to fix that is there's only one court in the whole land that can bind all 50 states, and that's the United States Supreme Court. Wherever the United States Supreme Court decides binds all the 50 states. So unless the United States Supreme Court decides to take a damage cap case, we'll, have, we'll end up with 50 different decisions on the matter. In Colorado, damage caps are okay. Oregon, they're not okay. Texas, they're okay, et cetera, et cetera. But there's only one court that could make a binding law for the entire country, and that's the United States Supreme Court. Then there's these things called apology laws. Apology laws protect a doctor in case there is an error. They protect a doctor or a provider with regard to what you can say to a patient and what you can't say to a patient. And they exist in 29 states. It turns out that Colorado has the broadest apology law in the entire nation. And it says it protects any and all statements, affirmations, gestures, conduct, fault, sympathy, commiseration, condolence, compassion, and general sense of benevolence. So I can express all those things, including fault. I can say uh, to the patient, gosh, I'm really sorry, I screwed up. And the patient can't use that admission in their lawsuit. They'll have to prove that I screwed up in some other way. They can't say, well, just Dr. High said so. So that Colorado has the broadest apology law. Texas has a narrower apology law. They say it protects statements that express sympathy or general sense of benevolence relating to pain, suffering, or death of an individual. But they don't protect with regard to what? Fault. So you could take one statement. You could say, uh, after a procedure, you make the following statement. I am sorry for your pain, I mistakenly failed to de- uh, close your wound properly, and that failure caused your pain and suffering. In Colorado, all of this conversation is outlawed. It can't be brought up in the trial at all. It's like it never happened. I can just say, I don't want it in there. A- and they'll have to prove that I did all those things in some other way. But in Texas, all that would be protected is this statement right here. I'm sorry for your pain. But all this could be brought up in court. I mistakenly failed to close your wound properly. So if your state has an apology law, you should go home and learn what it is and learn what you can say and what you can't say because it's really, really, really important that you know what your state's apology law is. And then weak records are are an invitation to sue. So you want to be really, really careful that your records are are good, tight, because an independent expert will probably look at the records and they'll probably tell the attorney, "Yeah, this looks like a good one. This looks good to me," or they'll say, "Gosh, you know, it seems like the person did everything I would have done. I'm not sure there's much of a case there." And I do this all the time. Uh, I get asked questions like this all the time in my role as a professor. What do you think of this care? And if I can, if I can read all the records and they make sense and I follow what the person's saying. I usually say, gosh, you know, I wouldn't have done anything different. It's just an unfortunate outcome. Whereas if the records are really, really poor and spotty, I might not be able to say that. So here's an example. This is a real lawsuit in Colorado. It was a 47-year-old woman who had a, quote, rash on the scalp, and the dermatologist examined it and prescribed a topical steroid. 18 months later, the woman went to a different dermatologist who did a biopsy, and it showed an infiltrated basal cell carcinoma, not a rash. And so she went on to have micrographic surgery, and it ended up being a very, very big surgical defect. And so she sued for a delayed diagnosis and a larger surgery than if uh, action would have been taken the first time she went to the first dermatologist. So this is the actual note from the first case. Patient presents itchy rash times months. Doesn't even say how many months. Itchy rash times months, anterior scalp, red, red itchy plaque on anterior scalp, Assessment, C-brake dermatitis, planned CINILAR twice a day until resolved. That was the entirety, that was the whole note right there. Here's what would have uh, also been known to the doctor that didn't make the note. The patient already had a history of basal cell carcinoma at 41. She'd already had micrographic surgery performed, also on the forehead but at a different site. She canceled two follow-up appointments to see if the, quote, rash had resolved. And the patient, uh, 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 di- w- w- there was sort of a vague history that he said, you know, I could biopsy it if you want. And she said, oh, you know, I don't have insurance. Uh, let's just treat it with the Sentinel." I'm not sure that it was an out-and-out decline of a biopsy, but he maintains that he discussed a biopsy, and she had no insurance and didn't want to pursue that. But he didn't document any of that at all in his note. So here would have been a better note. Uh, a patient presents for crusted, itchy plaque on the scalp. A chief complaint is a really good idea because it shows what direction the, the, the entire visit was headed. Presents for scaling and predict plaque, six months on anterior scalp, history of non-melanoma skin cancer treated with micrographic removal, uh, the size of the plaque. Notice the guy didn't even specify the size of the plaque, so there's no way to defend how big the micrographic uh, surgery uh, was. Uh, that there was scaling erythema, no ulceration, non-tender, consistent with sabderm, it's showing what he was thinking. Well, this certainly could uh, be break dermatitis. break dermatitis is common upon the scalp, would present with itching, would present with scaling. Offered biopsy, declined for finances. Trial of fluocinolide liquid twice a day until resolved. If persists or fails bi- uh, treatment, return for biopsy, follow-up in three months. If this guy would have put that note in there, this lawsuit never would have happened. But he didn't even put simple things like the size of the lesion. Now here you'll see, 18 months ago, the lesion was 3.7 by 4 centimeters in, in d- diameter. She had a 5 millimeter uh, Mohs procedure done. Uh, five, excuse me, 5 centimeter Mohs procedure. So really, not much transpired in that 18 months, right? It went from 4 centimeters to 5 centimeters. But because he didn't say that in his note, it, it, he leaves it open for anyone to guess how big the lesion was you know could have been one centimeter and now it's five centimeters so so it was a really this is a really really crappy note that got the person in a lot of trouble a lot of trouble so an adequate note does it take more time absolutely does it take more time to write this I guarantee it does but it also takes a lot of time to sit in depositions it also takes a lot of time to have meetings with attorneys also takes a lot of time to go down to court take time to be in counseling for for your crappy decisions uh, and your depression that results so so really you know it's party now pay later you know if you're not writing good clear legible notes then you're gonna get in trouble and you're gonna spend your time in other ways is my theory that's my theory of the matter so when there's an absence of data and a failure to note the treatment recommendations and the failure to document the need for follow-up you're gonna get in trouble You know, we already covered this with Dr. Deinhardt. You want to be documenting uh, missed follow-up. That's important. And so I came up with this little acronym of can't everyone document the most important stuff? Only I wasn't thinking stuff. It might be more more memorable, but can't everyone document the most important stuff? And if you think about that, it's chief complaint, extent of history and examination, diagnosis or impression, treatment, medications, instructions, and scheduled follow-up. That stuff should appear in any good medical note. So a chief complaint is important because it shows the direction that the visit was headed. and it also conveys to, to not to attorneys, but it conveys to savvy clinicians like myself what the circumstances of the visit were. For example, if you say patient concerned about rough spot on heel," I kind of I, I've seen plenty of women that have this rough spot on the heel and it's really generally not even a very good focused visit. It's usually due to shoes and choices and things like that. Wife made me come in for crusty spots on back. That, that, that chief complaint written in the patient's own language really suggests that he's kind of a reluctant patient. He doesn't really think anything's wrong. He's here for his wife, and that's a little different than he might portray portray the visit in a few years where he says no I was extremely concerned about this black spot right here and I begged the doctor to take it off and they refused well that's not really the tone of the visit that you get from the chief complaint or this one bugs crawling out of my skin for two years that no one can figure out (laughs) we all have those kind of patients and we know immediately bugs crawling out of my skin for two years that no one can figure out that's a doctor shopper that's a paranoid uh, delusions of parasitosis that goes to a whole bunch of different doctors, and no one can figure it out because there's really no bugs there. That's why nobody can figure it out. So a chief complaint is useful. You want to make a point to discuss allergies. Remember, that's a very, very easy lawsuit. I told the doctor I was allergic to it. They gave it to me anyway. I had a horrible reaction. So you want to be very, very clear. And I just usually ask all my patients a second time, when I'm writing the prescription. You're really not allergic to anything? Okay, great. I just confirm it, what the, doc, what the medical assistant or the office worker has already gathered uh, from the patient. And then if you're still doing typewritten notes and not a lot of people are, you really want to write legibly, not only so that, that, that you can read it and that the attorneys can read it, but also so that experts, so that people are going to defend you, can also read uh, the, the note as well. And then dictation is generally, uh, that people, studies have found that dictation has better notes. Uh, people that dictate write better notes than people that handwrite. So it might even be worthwhile when you perceive that a situation is very complicated or litigious, that maybe that's a note to, to do a dictation on instead of uh, writing your own note. Never, ever, ever change a note after a claim is initiated. Never, ever, ever add anything to the chart after you've gotten notification of a cha- claim just contact your attorney instead because that makes you look guilty even if you're not, even if you say, oh gosh, I just forgot to say that, but it really truly did happen. Don't ever, ever add it after a claim has been initiated because nothing is more devastating to an innocent defense against medical malpractice than an inadequate or skimpy record except for when a record has been changed after the fact. So resist, just don't even go get the chart. If you've been named in the suit, just go ahead and send the chart your attorney and then uh, go examine it at his office. Don't even get in in an environment where you might be tempted to do something to the chart. And then uh, one thing that you can do is all courts allow for admission of usual customs and practices. So if you're finding that it's hard to write out a detailed note about what happened or didn't happen, what you can do is you can have um, uh, prescribed medication uh, information sheet number three provided. And on that provided medication information sheet, all the things that you normally say about retin-A or all the things you normally say about minocycline are on there. The court will allow you to present that as part of your evidence. You say, I always give them this handout, and this handout always contains the same information. That's something that you can do to speed up your excellent documentation. And then another thing I said that that, uh, uh, mid-level providers in particular... Uh, can get in trouble about timely referrals. And so one thing is that you want to be really, really clear about referrals. So instead of just saying things like vag bleeding to OBGYN or back pain to ortho, which is kind of vague, did that mean that you were going to do it? Or did that mean the patient was going to do it? Or who was going to do it? There's not really enough information here that you say, patient to see Dr. Smith, her OBGYN for vag bleeding understands importance. She will call today. She will do it. Not me. She will do it. It's her doctor. She likes him. She will do it today. She understands that it's important. And same thing for the back pain thing. Patient will call his ortho today to address back pain. So that's a little bit different than these short narratives that would could, would, could only get you in trouble because maybe somebody would say, well, that meant you were going to do it. You were going to arrange for this visit. And this is more clearly that the patient was going to do it. And then good physical exam. Uh, It's amazing to me, look at that case against that uh, doctor for the basal cell carcinoma. He didn't even describe how big the plaque was. So when she had her 5-centimeter surgery, nobody knew if that was substantially more, substantially less. It was just her word versus his word. Where if he would have provided measurements, he would have been in a much more defensible position. So you want to make sure that your descriptions are really, really clear and really, really precise and are describing exactly what you think they're describing. And then uh, the size of the lesion is almost always neglected. It's amazing how many pathology uh, accession forms I get that don't specify the size of the lesion at all. So I have no idea if I'm looking at most of the lesion, some of the lesion, just a tiny sliver of the lesion. I don't usually know. And we already saw how that's a problem with Veruca's carcinoma yesterday. We saw how that was a problem with this, quote, hand rash, because people kept taking peripheral biopsies and nobody said, gave the size of the overall lesion or anything like that. So size is really, really important with regard to notes, for sure. And then understanding the basics and limits of dermatopathology. We already talked about this. I'm uh, As the biopsies get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, this impacts the accuracy of diagnosis for sure. So at some point, it's pointless to do a 1.5-centimeter biopsy. You might as well, 1.5-millimeter punch, you might as well just not do one at all or do a 3, but don't just do a 1.5-millimeter because you're not going to trust the result at all if if the lesion's this big and you're doing this tiny little punch biopsy from the side of it. And then we already talked about you should query all your doctors. Are you sure you understood this? Did you know the patient has a history of that? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because these pathology reports are entirely fallible. There's nothing magical about them. They're dependent upon a whole do- uh, bunch of people. We even talked already about how the uh, College of Anatomic Pathologists, they allowed 4 to 6% of cases uh, from institutions to even be based upon the wrong tissue. So there was tissue misidentification in 6% of cases from 417 institutions. Now, I would have a fit if we had a 6% misidentification rate at my laboratory, but it is possible that there is some error like that. So you need to speak up sooner rather than later. Crap in, crap out. uh, when When you don't provide any insight into the lesion, it doesn't allow us to be certain that we know that we're looking at the right thing. And then, uh, you know, some people say, oh, I didn't want to provide anything because I don't want to bias the pathologist. That's just a, that's a, just a simple excuse for being lazy. And that's going to get you in trouble for sure. So assume there's been an errant diagnosis of melanoma by a dermatopathologist involving a punch biopsy you had performed. Which of the following may be expected? You'll never hear about it at all. Only the dermatopathologist will be sued. Questions will be asked about the size of the biopsy and any clinical information that you provided. Uh, so long as there is not a payment made, uh, the medical board will never want to speak with you about the case. And so long as a payment is not made, you'll never, uh, never have to disclose that anyone made a claim against you or your supervising doctor. Yeah, that, that's the right answer. So always be aware that even if you think your dermatopathologist is the person in trouble, all of you guys are gonna get thrown against the wall. There's gonna be questions about every single thing. What information did you provide? What was the size of the biopsy? What was the size of the lesion? How suspicious were you? Uh, what was the patient's past medical history? Did you convey that past medical history of melanoma to the, to the pathologist? All those questions will, be, will come up and you'll all be kinda of thrown against the wall to see who could be shook, shaken down for a few hundred thousand dollars in each case. Certainly, the dermatopathologist is in the most trouble. I don't argue that. But what I'm saying is if you've kind of done kind of a a half-witted job on on providing him information or her information about the case, that's actually going to come out. That's actually going going to come out. So you want to have a good system for the return of results. You want to have a good way to follow up on every biopsy. This is the most important statement from this slide. The provider who performs the biopsy has the greatest responsibility to get a result. And that's been decided in almost every state in the country. So if you're the person who does the biopsy, you hold the greatest responsibility for getting that patient a result. Surprisingly, it's not even the dermatopathologist. It's you. Because what if the dermatopathologist, I told you in my sessions, every laboratory can say, yeah, we're not interested in that case. We refuse. We decline. So, so the, the person providing the biopsy is the person who has the ultimate responsibility to get a result. doesn't mean that the dermatopathology lab or the dermatopathologist won't be named as well, but you have the greatest responsibility, and that's why most institutions keep a biopsy book. They even keep a biopsy book separate from the medical record to make sure that everything that goes out ultimately got some kind of diagnosis. And then you want to document informed consent. Generally, in most states, you need a consent for any type of invasive procedure. That's usually, in most states, not liquid nitrogen, but it's anything else. A shave, a punch, an excision, anything like that, in most states will require a consent form, whereas liquid nitrogen in most states does not. And if you fail to get consent, it's called battery. And in most cases, I like to document that a consent was obtained separate from the preprinted consent form, Because what if that pre-printed consent form gets lost? At the University of Colorado, we have all those pieces of paper going all around the hospital and tubes and everything else. So I usually actually say just in my note, consent obtained. It doesn't have to be longer than that. Consent obtained. And then if the university can't present present the form years and years later, I say, well, it's always my pattern uh, of behavior to get the consent and then document that consent was obtained. So therefore based on my usual practices and procedures, it was. It's just a little way to protect myself just a little bit more. So document any informed refusal. Um, you should really actually say, patient offered biopsy left ankle because of concern it may be cancer. Explain the risk of not taking the biopsy, including the risk of missing cancer or pre malignant condition. Patient expressed understanding firmly declined. That's a lot better than just patient decline this is the Cadillac version again doing anything a little bit better is going to take more time but it explains more as to the to what were your thoughts on the matter you were very very much against this and you told them that it could be a cancer or even a pre malignant condition and they understood that but they firmly declined and then uh, uh, always document follow-ups because you know you don 't know uh, at some institutions the the appointments are kept in a completely separate record from the from the uh, from the medical record and in that case, I showed you with the basal cell on the scalp that was missed for eighteen months that woman missed two follow up appointments, but it wasn't known because the appointment system wasn't held on to for that long. The appointment system was kind of flighty and and, and uh, the the hard drive something happened to it or something like that but If you just say that follow-up appointments were missed in the record, it becomes very, very obvious. So what I usually say is uh, uh, I usually actually say in my medical note, missed appointment on blank and blank, so that it's another way to catch that kind of information if just the, uh, the expert is reviewing just the medical record and not the appointment logs and things like that. And non-compliance, I always put that in the record. I say, you know, patient continues to use alcohol and isotretinoin, but what would be even better is patient continues to use alcohol and isotretinoin and explain that this can lead to dangerous metabolites accumulating in the body. That would be kind of the Cadillac version. But in either case, at least you've documented non-compliance. And then give clear and personalized follow-up. Instead of just saying follow-up PRN, say follow-up of pigmented lesion on the left arm enlarges, changes color, or otherwise alters in behavior. That, that's even tighter. And certainly this is good, but this is the Cadillac version right here. And if you're thinking like an attorney, thinking like a jury, juror, this is a better statement than just follow-up PRN. And then avoid subjective or pejorative remarks in the record. You, instead of saying the patient is rude, say the patient provides only short answers. Instead of saying the patient is an alcoholic, say patient drinks X number of alcoholic beverages daily, often begins day with alcohol. That, that's a little bit less prejudicial, and, and it will make you look uh, a little less, you know. They have a tendency to paint you in an unflattering light if you say things like patient is rude, patient is alcoholic. So these are better ways to convey this. Same thing with patient is a poor historian. Instead, say patient has difficulty recalling dates, diagnoses, and details, provides no outside records, cannot provide uh, names of prior providers. Because that really uh, you know, conveys that you tried all different avenues for securing this information a lot better than patient is poor historian. And then avoid criticisms of other providers. You want to be very, very careful that you don't say things that are inflammatory, that make things work worse on others. Because karma a bitch, right? <laughs> and it will come back to you. And so you don't want to say anything. Uh, I usually just say, gosh, I really don't know all the details. That seems strange to me. I just I couldn't even comment on that. I think the world of Dr. XYZ, I'm sure there were some other details that I didn't know about. I, I just avoid really dabbling in their cases at all, because I really don't. That's a true statement. I don't know what happened, and I'm only getting one side of the issue. So things that I say is I, I usually deflect lawsuits by saying, well, cancers do recur sometimes, even when everything's done right. Everything was done correctly, they still come back. Or sometimes I say, biopsies are samples, and samples may or may not contain the findings that we need for a diagnosis. So when they say, well, but I had this biopsy. I say, well, biopsies are samples, and maybe it just wasn't a very good sample, and I can't explain it. And I try to deflect the lawsuit and and negate the lawsuit rather than flame it on and on. And then uh, there's a very famous study that showed primary care physicians with fewer claims usually make more statements of orientation edu- and education as to regard to what they're going to do next, what's going to happen next, what they're going to look at next. And then they usually use laughter and humor more, and their visits are slightly longer. So, you know, I try to present my, 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 um, my talks usually, no matter what, where I'm speaking or what I'm speaking on. I usually try to make jokes and things that make the, the talk more memorable and more something that you'll hang on to for a larger time, longer time. But I think the same thing is true with regard to to visits, if you're pleasant and fun and happy, it makes the pleasant the patient pleasant and fun and happy to be around, and everything seems to go uh, better. So, two of the best instruments for safer medical care are a follow up call to to the patient or to your dermatopathologist or to another provider or to a referral source or anyone. A telephone and tincture of follow up are the two best instruments for safer medical care. This prevents things from becoming big deals. If you're seeing patients, you're following up on them, you're checking on them, you're checking on their appointments, you're checking on their results, you end up over time with better care and more defensible care, and you'll stay out of trouble uh, better. Uh, So there's Morgan and Madison, and that is Gaston, right? Yeah, I thought so. Okay. All right, and we're uh, right on time. Are there any questions or concerns or anything like that? Yes, ma'am. Uh, uh, For anything more than liquid nitrogen, I do a written consent. So the question is on consent obtained. All these issues are decided at the state level, so whatever state you practice in, uh, uh, there's probably precedence, meaning lawsuits that have been decided in the past. But for liquid nitrogen, I would do a... a, In Colorado, I would do a verbal consent. And for anything else, I would do a written consent. And and the written consent is done by the university. They're already pre-printed. Everything else, I just go and grab them and work on them, et cetera, et cetera. But but, uh, I do always document also in my medical note, because sometimes that may be the only thing that goes to the outside expert if there's a question in the care that I've provided. I also say consent obtained in the medical record as well, because I don't trust the university to be able to produce this document in five years or something like that. Yes, ma'am. Have you had any experience with kind of a cookie cutter template coming back to haunt people? Yeah, yeah. So that's something I talk about at the Academy. Uh, I've talked about that at the Academy meeting, in fact, the Academy in Denver. So it's a good question. So she's asking, is the cookie-cutter approach uh, ever come back to haunt you? Absolutely it does. And so what I've said at the Academy every single year is I, I started saying this about five years ago. I said, as EMRs become more and more available, and the EMR just spews all that crap out that didn't really happen. like. Uh, You know, you spent all this time counseling on sunscreen, you avoided the 10 o'clock to 3 o'clock sun, you did all these things. I said, at some point, lawyers are going to catch on that that's just all being spewed out from the the EMR, and they're going to assert that none of it actually really happened. And sure enough, I think it was last year, somebody successfully sued someone saying that all of that was just, quote, boilerplate. You know what boilerplate is? It's that thing that comes at the end of the car dealership commercial where they say, you know, uh, does not affect stock on hand, blah, 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 blah. They say all that stuff. That's boilerplate. And so the lawsuit asserted that all the EMR was entirely boilerplate and none of it happened. And so what I I proposed at the academy is if you're customizing it and and, and removing some of it and adding a little bit and putting in specific doctor names for referrals and things like that, that avoids the charge that it's just being spewed out by EMR and that none of it really happened because you're customizing it just a tiny bit for each and every patient. And then I said at the academy meeting, I said, does it take longer? Absolutely. But so does going to depositions, going to meet with attorneys, uh, going to counseling, all those things also take time as well. So, so there's really no way about, you, you know, no pain, no gain. All those statements are true. There's no way getting around the fact that if you're safer, it's going to take slightly longer than, than it is to just allow the EMR to populate all those things. But lawyers are savvy people, and they're catching on that most of the stuff that spews out of the EMR never even happened. Thank you for allowing me to assist your meeting, and I hope everything goes well.